We're going to continue in our study in the book of Philippians. So if you turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. And last week we examined the false confidence in the flesh. And we saw how Paul had a large list of things he trusted in before he was saved. By way of review, while you're turning to Philippians chapter 3, I will go back and read that. Starting at verse 4, he says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, is touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. And so we're going to pick up in verse 8 this morning and read through verse 11. He says, Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith." that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And so here's how I want us to examine this passage this morning. Paul says, all these things that I had and I was trusting him before I was saved, how we again looked at how he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, how he was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, how he was a Pharisee, all these things. He says, that's loss, that's, that's refuse, it's, it's garbage to me compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Now this is another one of those truths, Christian, that once you get your mind wrapped around it, it will change your life, I promise you. And that is, the goal of life ought to be to know Christ. The goal of my life ought to be to know Jesus Christ. Now, not just know about him, but to know him personally. That ought to be the goal of my life. Know Christ. Speak of Christ. Love Christ. Think on him. And so we're going to look at first, uh, first we'll see the loss. Then in verse 9, we'll observe the change. And then we'll conclude with the gain. Father, I pray again that you give us wisdom as we study this passage this morning. Again, Lord, teach us to stop trusting in the things of this world, to stop looking at the things that the, uh, er, the world provides, or rituals, or religion, or works. But Lord, help us to just focus on knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says, yea, doubtless, I count all things. Well, the all things goes back to the passage, that's why I read the previous passage, goes back to that, all those things that I said I could trust in. All these false teachers coming to you, Philippi, saying that, hey, believe me, because I'm, an, I'm a smart guy. He says, look, I have all these things I could trust in too. I have a great resume. He says, but that's not what's important. What's important is knowing Jesus Christ. The circumcision, the education, the religion, etc. He says all that is just the things of the flesh. Do not trust in the works of flesh because we're not justified by the works of flesh. Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. 
Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, but for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Paul says, all my earthly gain is worthless. Now, Christian, we've got to wrap our mind around this because we live in, in 21st century America. We are such a materialistic society, and it has infiltrated the Christian thinking. I'll tell you how, in some ways, I believe it's infiltrated the Christian thinking. I have good pastor friends who meet in storefronts that people won't come to the church because it's not its own separate building. Let me tell you something. That is ridiculously materialistic. Because is the church really about a building? No, the church is the body of believers that meets in the building. And who cares if it's in a storefront? But we think we need to have bigger, better. We need to do better than they are. We need to have bigger this, better that. You know, I'm thankful for the facilities God has given us. Okay, this is a beautiful building. Now, I've had a lot of people say, before we, added the, we started doing the work out front, that it looks like a warehouse from the outside, but looks like a beautiful church on the inside. And people would judge about that. You know, but who cares? Right? But then Christians think that we have to have, in our personal lives, bigger, better. Look, I... You know, God has blessed some people financially, and they're able to have a nice home and nice car and everything else. But let me tell you something. If those things are distracting from Jesus Christ, you're better off without them. Things of this world are going to pass away. You know, the sign that used to say, he who has the most toys wins. Wins what? I have a brother, one older brother. And he thought that he had to have a nice home, a big pool. He owned his own business. And I understand being self-employed today is very hard because the government always is there to take and make sure they get their fair share. Okay, let's just call it what it is. But he would work from sunup to sundown to have his motorcycle, to have his pool, to have his big home, to have his everything. And let me tell you something. Now that his kids are older and out of the house, he hasn't directly said it, but I can tell by conversations we've had, he would do it differently if he could do it over again. Because you know what the, you know what the house got him? And you know what the pool got him? And you know what the Harleys got him? Nothing. He's been divorced twice, living with a girl who's not his wife, and he would change it all, I promise you, if he could. Now, I'm not sitting here, I'm not saying this to criticize. I love my brother dearly, okay? And I am not saying this to be judgmental to him because you know what? There's things in my life I would change if I could go back and redo it. But you know what he learned the hard way? Living for things didn't bring the happiness he thought they would. And too many Christians have bought into this. I have seen it over and over again. But, 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 I need to have this. You know, if I get this one thing, it's going to make me happy. No, it won't. I promise you, it will not bring happiness. He says, I count them as dung. Dung has the idea of refuse or garbage or rubbish. Do you hold dearly to the things of this world? What is the one thing, if you were to say, there's one thing in my life I could not do without? Now think about that. Now what if God were to take that from you? Would you still serve him? 
would you still love him? Would your goal still be Christ? Or would the thing that was most important to you be gone and it changed the way you think about God? Because let me tell you something, that has happened way too many times. I love God, I trust God, people sitting there and they're in church and they, 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 are follow, they seem like they're following God, but then God and His infinite wisdom decides there's something in their life that they're, trying, they're putting ahead of God, and so He takes it out of their life, and then instead of saying, thank you God for focusing my attention on you, they get mad at God and turn away from God. I've seen it happen way too many times. Let me tell you something, God took your idol and your idol was more important than God. That's what happened. It's better to recognize you're holding on to idols and get rid of them yourself than to have God take them from you. So anything that's distracting from you learning of God or you obeying God is an idol in your life and you're better off without it, period. Hebrews 12.1 says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Normal runners don't put on a bunch of weight before they go run it. I said normal. Well, not that they necessarily run with it, but they do go marching with it. Marines put a hundred and some pounds on their back and then go walking around with it on as if that's a smart idea and then wonder why they all have aches and pains the rest of their life. But anyhow, I understand why they do it. And that was, I, it was not fun walking with them. I trust you, I didn't have any fun with it. I don't know whoever called runs funs either. Fun runs, they used to call them. I'm like, what is a fun run? And you know, I used to tell them this three mile nonsense in a real life situation, Marine had to run three miles. There's probably some serious problems going on. But anyhow, moving on. The Navy's philosophy was this, though. A mile and a half, run. Because they had the philosophy of the biggest ship to get from the bottom all the way to a weather deck, you would have to run equivalent to that, but it's also straight up ladders. So they factored that in. And so they figure it takes as much energy as running a mile and a half as to get to the weather deck to get overboard. I thought that was pretty good logic. That's why they made us run a mile and a half. I never understood the Marine Corps logic of three miles. But anyhow, moving on. When, they, when normal people run, they put aside the weight. Christian, here's the problem. We feel we got to carry all the weight of the world with us and trying to run the race for Jesus Christ. And we wonder why we're getting set aside. We wonder why we're getting tired. We wonder why we're worn out. You know why? Because we're not designed to carry the weight with us. Lay it aside. And the sin which does so easily beset us. You know, that's interesting. It's not named. You know why? Because it's different for each one of us. And you know what your besetting sin is. You know what you're easily tempted by. Get rid of it. Set it aside. I think I told you before, for several years we had no TV in the house. Not that I was trying to be more spiritual than anybody else, but you know what I realized? I couldn't control it. It was controlling me, so I got rid of it. Then I learned how to, as God helped develop my life and discipline, I got one again because now I can control it. It doesn't control me, okay? So I never said the TV itself was sinful. What was on it was sinful, and it was sinful for me to have it because I would rather sit in front of the TV for hours than do things I was supposed to do. So I had to get rid of it. And you know, by the way, the whole time I had it, I didn't miss it. Sometimes I wonder why I ever put it back in the house, but it's there. Because if I were to get rid of it again, I wouldn't have to watch Hallmark movies. Hallelujah. A weight may not be something wrong, but it slows you down in the race. 
okay? I think I shared with you last week, I went, I, Rich invited me to go fishing with him, and we had a great day fishing. I love to go fishing. I really do. Some people don't like fishing. Now, actually, I don't like fishing. I like catching, okay? Because he invited me out another day, and we caught absolutely nothing. That was not a good day. So I guess I should not really say I like fishing. I like catching. But anyhow, I could put fishing very easily as a weight in my life if I'm not careful. I could go all the time and neglect my responsibilities because I'd rather be out fishing. And there are men who do that, by the way. They will neglect their family, neglect their whatever, neglect all kinds of other responsibilities because their favorite sport is more important. And they're going to do what they want to do. It's my time. It's my life. So even the things that you love and enjoy need to be rubbish compared to your relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Let's remember, our righteousness is as filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. We shall be all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. So Paul says, the things of the flesh are but loss. The things of this world, they're nothing to me. Sometimes we, again, put <clears throat> this emphasis, this weird emphasis on, and it's still done in churches today, on putting so much emphasis on education. And, you know, well, we want a pastor who has a doctorate degree. By the way, you don't have a pastor who has a doctorate degree. I don't have a master's degree. I actually technically didn't finish a bachelor's degree. I finished what ambassador called a three-year Bible certificate. So it's three years. But now I do believe a call to preach is a call to prepare. Okay? But it didn't say you had to go to this college for this many years in order to prepare. And we put way too much emphasis on the wrong things. So verse 9, or verse 8 rather, we talked about the loss. Now let's look at verse 9, the change. And being found in him. That's very important words. Be found in him. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And where am I found? In him. In Christ. I'm in Jesus Christ. You see, I have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ placed on my account. I want you to think about this, Christian. When God looks at you, he sees you as righteous as he sees his son, Jesus Christ. Now that astounds me because I know that's not who I am. Not the flesh side of me. But the new man created in me is. And that's what God sees. That's the change. You see, it had nothing to do with Paul and his righteousness and the things that Paul had and, the, and his heritage and his education, but everything was about Jesus Christ. Hold your place here in Philippians and turn back to Romans, if you will, with, uh, just a few books back. Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul talks about this imputed righteousness of Christ. Starting in verse 1, what shall we say then that our that Abraham our father, as pertaineth to the flesh, hath found. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof the glory, 
but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is reward, but not reckoned to grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness, how was it then reckoned, when he was in circumcision or uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet been uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not, yet, uh, be, though they be not circumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed unto them also. I'll tell you what, folks, that passage is full of doctrine. But Paul is saying that it was not works that saved Abraham. It was his belief in God. His faith in God is what, what, why the righteousness was imputed to Abraham, because he believed God. You see, Old Testament folks were saved the same way we are, believing God, right? Now, you and I are commanded to put our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, right? Abraham was told, Abraham, I want you to leave your father and mother. I want you to leave your homeland. I want you to go to the land of uh, Canaan. Thank you. And I'm going to make a great nation of you there. Okay? He left and he went and did. It wasn't his works that saved him. It was the belief that God had said this and he's going to do it. He followed, believed God. Then God said, after he has his only promised son, he says, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac up to the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, it wasn't the action of taking Isaac up to the mountain and, and offering him as a sacrifice, which God stopped him. It was the belief that God had promised through this child would be this great nation, and somehow, some way, God was still going to keep his promise, even though I'm about ready to kill this young boy. Somehow, some way, God is going to keep his promise. Hebrews 11 makes that clear. It was the belief in God, okay, following what God said. So you and I are saved by believing what God said. You want to go to heaven? You want to have eternal life? You have to put your faith in Jesus Christ right? Okay. So it's saying it was the belief that saved Abraham, right? Then he makes this point because again, he's trying to help the Jews understand that salvation is not for the Jew only, but also for the Gentile. He says, so did Abraham believe God while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, when he left Ur of the Chaldees, he was not yet circumcised. As a matter of fact, circumcision was given as a sign of the promise that God had given him after Abraham obeyed. So Paul's making a very logical point here that any reasoning person should be able to see if Abraham was saved before he was circumcised, then is it circumcision that saves? No. Duh. Right? Okay, and you kind of, they should have, whoever reads this should get that oh, duh moment. Oh, it's not the works that save, it's the faith that saves, right? Okay, we know that 
Now, let's go down to verse 20. Okay, this is again talking about Abraham. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that he that what he had promised he was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom believe to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. So what his conclusion is, is the same way Abraham's faith is what saved him, had the righteousness of God imputed to him. So when you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on Calvary, you and I have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to our account. Isn't that beautiful? That's the change, folks. That's the change. This is what changed Paul's mind from my education, my religion, my position in life is so important to that's worthless. It was because he realized that the righteousness of God was imputed to him when he believed Jesus Christ. Folks, that change ought to really truly make a change in your life. If you've been born again, there ought to be that great change. Remember the song we used to sing as kids? The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore, you know. And then, you know, while, while we're singing that song, somebody go and see if the preacher's done yet. And the, and the one leading the song would keep making up verses, you know, places I used to go, I don't go anymore. The things I used to drink, I don't drink them anymore. Since my righteousness is as filthy rags, God has imputed the righteousness of Christ to my account at the moment of salvation. I am justified, the word is. You know what justified means? Declared righteous. Declared righteous. I have been declared righteous by God. What does it matter what anybody else thinks? I've been declared righteous by God. So, verse 9, And being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. How's this righteousness obtained? By faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Romans 1.17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. We're not to finish the, uh, the trust in the works of the flesh, but in the finished work of Christ. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Have you seen the risen Christ with your own eyes? Do you have faith that he is risen? Folks, it's believing without seeing. So many today will show me and then I'll believe. That's not faith. Faith is I believe and I know someday I'll see. I know, not hope so, I know someday I am going to see Jesus Christ. We are to live by faith. That change then changed the entire attitude, the entire direction, the entire life, the entire motivation for the Apostle Paul. Paul was no longer motivated by material things. Now, was Paul, did Paul still have a sinful nature? Okay, let's not be mistaken. Paul still was a man like you and I. 
Paul still had desires like you and I. Paul still had a flesh like you and I. But his focus was so on Christ that the things of this world, as the song says, grew strangely dim to him. They didn't matter anymore. How important are the things of this world to you? Again, Christian, I'm going to emphasize that because if you're holding on to the things of this world, then how's your relationship with Christ? Oh, I have a good relationship with Christ. How much time did you spend with him this week? How many hours in prayer did you spend this week? How much time in his word did you spend this week? Now, I know I'm speaking to the early morning crowd. How faithful are you to God and church? How faithful are you at giving? How faithful are you at witnessing to others? How many souls have opportunity to go to heaven this week because you shared the gospel with them? Well, preacher, I'm shy. Well, preacher, I, excuse, excuse, excuse. You will do and make time for what is important to you, period. So let's look at the gain. The gain. That I may know him. Knowing Christ is far superior to anything else we can know. I've heard people say, well, you know, I really just can't memorize Bible passages. But yet the same guy could tell me all the stats of his favorite sports team. You can memorize what's important to you. We need to learn of Christ. To spend time with him. The word know here is the Greek word gnosko, which is to come to know by experience. 1994, that sounds like so long ago, because we've been in 2000 so long. It's like, wow, the 1900s, that's like ancient history now. 1994, I met Susan. I married her, she married me, however you want to look at that. I've been the blessed one in this. I thought I knew her then but I know her better today because I've come to know her better. You know, there's a book I read. It said about, and it, it's relating back to the passage in uh, Peter. It talks about knowing our wives. It's like a continuous study. Always be studying to know your wife. And in case you haven't learned that sometimes their opinions change and things change. I hated when we played one of those games at a, one of the couples conferences they ask what's her favorite color flower I was like well, which year anybody else suffer with these things and nobody's going to admit it but i know her better today because we've been together we spent time together we talk we commune we invest time with one another so it ought to be the longer i know christ the more i know christ the closer my relationship with Christ ought to be. Are you closer to Jesus Christ today than you were a year ago? If not, then Christian, you need to start growing again. You're what, they call, what we call backslidden. Okay, We need to keep growing in Him, knowing Him. He says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. The power of of his resurrection. The Greek word there is dunamon, dunamin, or for the dunamis would be the root of it. It's the word from which they uh, derive the word dynamite. 
Now understand, when dynamite was developed, it was the biggest explosive at the time known to man. Okay, so don't get lost in thinking dynamite, pop, you know, that's no big deal, versus an atomic explosion, because the atomic bomb wasn't known then, okay? So the point being this, is it's supposed to mean a massive power, okay? So if we want to relate it to bombs today, let's think the atomic bomb, okay? The power of the resurrection. If the resurrection were not true, Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians 15. If the resurrection were not true, you and I are wasting our time sitting here today. And every one of us is a fool if the resurrection is not true to think that we have eternal life. And if the resurrection is not true, we might as well go live it up, folks, because this is the best it gets. And so to be denying ourselves and following Christ is foolishness if the, if the resurrection are not true. But you know, the resurrection is true. And by the way, all those things then are worthwhile. And also we have the power to do so because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the fellowship of his sufferings. We tend not to want to ever suffer. Every time we have something go wrong or we're in pain, our first prayer is, Lord, take it away. And I'm not going to say that that prayer is sinful because Paul had a thorn in the flesh and he asked for it to be removed. But when the answer came back that my grace is sufficient for you, Paul stopped asking. Here's what I see sometimes Christians doing. Even when I believe God's answer has been, I'm going to give you the grace to endure, they still keep complaining and whining against God instead of saying, thank you, Lord, as Paul did. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 4.13, But rejoice inasmuch as you are partaker of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Paul says that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. You know, as many martyrs died, they died being thankful they had the privilege of suffering for Christ. Now, not that they were some kind of weird psychos who thought, you know, oh, I enjoy pain and I want to suffer. But the fact that they were able to suffer for Jesus' name, they counted it a privilege. If you were to suffer for Christ's name, would you count it a privilege? Being made conformable unto his death. We need to put to death the old man and walk with Christ, who is living in us, Galatians 2.20. So, knowing Christ, learn of Christ. Matthew, 8, uh, Matthew 11, I'll turn there. Matthew 11, 28 through 30, if I can get my pages working here. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Learn of me, he says. Learn of Jesus Christ, who is meek and lowly. Christian, I understand there's a time to stand and fight. I understand there's a time to be dogmatic with the truth and say, thus saith the Lord. But what bothers me is the Christian who thinks that being arrogant 
or being obnoxious about the gospel is somehow to be commended. Jesus was meek and lowly. Now, yes, he did overturn the money changers' tables. But somehow, we've adopted into the world's philosophy, and it's getting worse and worse, of the name-calling and the whatever going on, especially in our political realm, is way out of hand. I'm about ready to set myself a personal policy that any time I start seeing a candidate that can't tell me what they're going to do, but all they can do is tell me how bad everybody else is and start name-calling, that they don't deserve my vote. Because it's insanity that that's all we can present, is pointing a finger like a bunch of two-year-olds in a playground, you know, you're whatever, you know, and it's, it's childish. And Christian, let's not stoop to that level. But rather, let's be doers of the word. James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. Do things of the right motives. Do things for God's glory. Who you are is important. Don't just say you love Christ, but show you love him. Let it truly be in your heart. God looks on the heart. He already knows what's in your heart. And then in closing, finish well. Verse 11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now, some have taken this to say, well, Paul doubted that he would be raised. That's not what he means. What he's saying is he wanted to finish well when he stood before Christ. It's Christ's resurrection that gives assurance of ours, does it not? You know, how many times do we sit there and remember who started the marathon? We don't, do we? Now, I don't remember who got the gold medal either, but if anybody's going to remember something about the marathon, it's going to be who won the marathon, right? Nobody cares who came in second, third, 25th, doesn't matter who won. Now, in the Christian race, we can all be winners. But it matters how we end the race. I've heard many older men, many older preachers say, as you get older, the fight gets harder. And you know what? I'm not old yet, but I'm starting to understand the older you get, the less you just don't want to fight anymore. You just rather not. But it still matters how we end the race. Be faithful. Be faithful. Forgetting those things which are behind. Count it all but loss. Don't worry about the things of this world. Hold the things of this world very lightly. No matter what God places in your hand or what God takes out of your hand, live with open hands. Charlie, come on up here. I had a teacher, and I'm going to give this illustration again because it's one of the best illustrations I know that apply this. Hold out your hands like this. Turn this way so everybody can see you. Thank you. Hold them together. So in Charlie's life, if I place this in his life, and I place this in his life, and I place this in his life, Charlie's happy, right? Who wouldn't be happy with a water bottle? But if God says, Charlie, you're holding on to this too much. I, don't, I need this back. You know what Charlie should say? Thank you, Lord. But here's what sometimes we do. When, I go to, when God comes to take something, we do exactly that. Oh no, Lord, not that. That's not living with open hands. And here's how we need to live, Christian. 
God, it was yours already. Whether you want to take it or not, it was yours. It was never mine to begin with. And you know what's best for me. We know that is a fact, do we not? Then can we live it? No matter what he places in your life, it's what's best. No matter what he takes from your life, it's what's best. Live with open hands. God knows. God cares. And the things of this world, hold them lightly because they're just things, right? Focus on Christ. Knowing him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable under his death.